This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here is ABC's Aaron Katursky. As the sun was finally setting on the Civil War in June 1864, President Lincoln conceded, War, at the best, is terrible. And this war of ours, in its magnitude and in its duration, is one of the most terrible. More than 150 years later, President Biden told an again war-weary America the nation's war in Afghanistan was coming to quick and honorable close. But just as the wounds of the Civil War would fester in a broken land, the pain of Afghanistan continues to pound. America now observes its first Memorial Day since ending its longest war. It was a messy, violent end. <laughs> Taliban fighters overran Kabul. The U.S. deployed 6,000 troops to evacuate American and allied personnel and to secure the airport where thousands scrambled to get out. Our highest priority right now is evacuating American citizens, evacuating Afghans who worked with us, and Afghans who are at risk. It was chaos. We're hearing an IED explosion, potentially a suicide attack. The explosion did occur at Abbey Gate. This U.S. official says that they are currently assessing casualty numbers right now. It is a catastrophic day for the U.S. military. These American service members who gave their lives, it's an overused word, but it's totally appropriate here, were heroes. The U.S. pullout from Afghanistan was supposed to spare the lives of U.S. military personnel, nearly 2,500 of which were killed during the 20-year war. But the suicide attack August 26th during the chaotic withdrawal at an airport checkpoint killed nearly 200 people, including 13 American troops. It was one of the deadliest attacks of the entire war. That 26, I was doing my coffee, and then I hear, we have... A uh, the chaos of that day, August 26th, in Kabul, is deeply felt 7,000 miles away. Here, in Logansport, Indiana, by Coral Briseño. I am Corporal Humberto Sanchez, mom. And who was Humberto Sanchez? Humberto Sanchez is... Ah, you want me to start with... He was a corporal in the United States Marines. Marine Corporal Humberto Sanchez was 22 years old and had been in Kabul all of 10 days when word of his death reached his mother in rural Logansport, Indiana, early the following morning. I just stopped. And that's how I figured it out. 1.40 in the morning. But soldiers on your door. Not a year later, on this Memorial Day, sitting at her home, Coral Briseño is left to fulfill her son's wish that he expressed to her as he deployed overseas. He actually stopped me outside when we were like saying bye, and he said, Mom, if I don't come back. So I stopped him and I said, you're going to come back. And then he said, Mommy, if I don't come back, I want you to keep telling my story. Humberto's story is rooted in his Mexican-American heritage. My son was the first Mama. one enlisted on the military. The first one enlisted on the military. Because if I push him a little bit, because he just feel like he wants to be somebody in life. Humberto Sanchez enlisted in the Marines at age 17. You want to hear the real story? Yes. <laughs> the real story is like, 
you know every teenager they like do bad choices when they are teens so he was not doing really good and I tried to push him to do something I want him out of the streets he was not a bad kid he was like really good at school A's and B's and like honor rolls and stuff like that he was like that since he was a little kid but then when he was in like I will say junior year he was not doing so good then I Ask him, why don't you join the military? And he said, you want them to kill me. And I said, no, but if they don't kill you in the military, they're going to kill you here. So you have to do something with your life. So this was his um, uh, senior picture. Look and, at the smile. Yeah. And this one, I always said those, per those teeth were perfect. No braces, no nothing. <laughs> that smile, seen in photos that decorate a console in the living room and a full wall by the stairs in Coral's home, seems to have come easy. But his mom told us that smile belied an often difficult childhood. I was victim of domestic violence for 10 years. So he lived with that all his life. He wants to do something. He wants to make me proud. He wants to protect me. Whether it was an innate desire to protect, a commitment to make something of himself, or a desire to serve the country that had opened its arms to his family, Humberto Sanchez enlisted in the Marines and became a rifleman. And you know why I picked the Marines? Because he said Marines are badass. And he was a badass, and he wanted to be a badass. Badass, as her son might have been, Coral said he had his soft spots. After his death, she received messages from classmates. There was a girl who also had an abusive father that he checked on every day, or another girl picked on because of her size. And she's like, and you know that he picked me up from home every day and take me to school and walk with me on the hallways and nobody else pick up on me. Once he deployed to Afghanistan, Coral told us she liked to remind her son of his humanity, of his immigrant roots, of his capacity to help. She's like, I see the Taliban executing kids and women outside the airport. So he was like so frustrated, he was sick, he was like upset because of the situation. And I tried to push him hard to be human. You have to save people, you have to save those kids. And I actually mentioned him. Just remember when we came from Mexico, because he was not born, it was just my daughter. But I always told him we came from Mexico because we didn't have good expectations of life. So I came to the States and this country opened their arms for me and your sister, and then obviously you got born here. So if these people want to leave, it's because they want a better life. And you are in the position that you can do something like that. Corporal Sanchez was guarding Abbey Gate at Kabul Airport. He was beating up guys, like middle-aged guys, because they were beating kids and women to get in front of the lines. And he noticed that, and I guess he was following my advice. He was following my advice, and he was helping those kids and women and sending those men, males, to the back. During the funeral, former Vice President Mike Pence spoke of Sanchez's commitment to that job. He was determined to get the kids out of the gate. And he stayed at his post. No one will ever say it better than his mother did. In those final moments of his life, it was a, a work of heart. Doing everything he could to get those kids out of harm's way. An ISIS-linked group claimed the suicide bombing at the airport gate August 26th that killed 13 U.S. service members. The lives we lost today were lives given in the service of liberty, the service of security, and the service of others, in the service of America. 
To his friends in Logansport, Corporal Sanchez was known as Bert. His name and messages wishing him eternal rest in peace appear on the sign at the local pancake restaurant, the laundry, and on lawn signs around town. Our community has been, like, so supportive. I found the chief of police, and he actually stopped and said, hey, how's your week? How? Like, it's just incredible. Is yes. it helpful, or does it... It helps. It helps, because at the... The first week it was everywhere, every single restaurant, every single place do you see the banners. I don't know if you drive by here. They, there's one in there. Um, I put one outside and there was full of flowers for weeks. You can't miss Coral's house. Multiple flags with the Marine Eagle Globe and Anchor emblem are stuck in the lawn between signs paying tribute to the branches of the military. A stone carving of boots, rifle and helmet, a symbol of a fallen Marine, sits at the edge of the driveway. And inside... There's that wall filled with mementos and photos. This one was uh, when he just uh, went to sixth grade. And this one was on my daughter's quinceañera. So he was like 13. Handsome. 12, 13. Yeah. He was really. This is the girlfriend. And I have his glasses, his phone. Does it help to have this in the house or is it hard to walk past it's hard it's hard but I guess every day I have a, I have something to leave every day when I feel I cannot do this I'm like I have to isn't that the cruelty and the salve of Memorial Day it can be painful to remember the fallen but their stories can unite and strengthen the nation The United States is observing Memorial Day for the first time since ending the country's longest war. Nearly 2,500 service members were killed in Afghanistan over the last 20 years, including 13 right at the end in an ISIS suicide bombing at a Kabul airport gate during the chaotic withdrawal. Of course I get angry, but it's not going to help me bring them back. Nothing's going to help me bring them back. Elizabeth Holguin's 20-year-old son was among a group now known as the Kabul 13. Earlier, you met Marine Corporal Humberto Sanchez. There's also Marine Sergeants Johanny Rosario Pichardo, Nicole Gee, and Darren Hoover, Marine Corporal Hunter Lopez, Marine Corporal Deegan Page, Marine Lance Corporals Jared Schmitz, Riley McCollum, Dylan Marola, and Kareem Nakui, Navy Corpsman Maxton Soviak. Army Staff Sergeant Ryan Noss, and Elizabeth Holguin's son, David Espinoza, a Lance Corporal in the Marine Corps. He was killed in August 26, 2021, in Afghanistan. Espinoza grew up near Laredo in Rio Bravo, Texas. He enlisted right after high school. He was a very quiet guy, but once he got to know you, he was outgoing. He would, um, he would be so funny. He was just a great person. He had a big heart. I see from the picture behind you, good-looking kid. Yeah. He was 19 when, when he joined the Marines. He was two years in the Marines when he got transferred to Afghanistan. The U.S. deployed 6,000 troops to evacuate the American embassy in Kabul as the Taliban took back control of Afghanistan. Espinosa had learned to be an infantryman at Camp Pendleton and received orders to go. He wouldn't share a lot with me. He would share more with my husband. I guess as his mom, he didn't want me to be worried. It has to be so hard to watch the news and see images of where your boy is. Yes, 
there was a time he called my husband. My husband told me, like, stay quiet. He put me on speaker, but my son didn't know I wasn't speaker. And he was just, like I said, talking to him, like how it really was. I had to stay quiet. I couldn't, so I left. And I lost it that afternoon, just hearing him and with the news, everything that was going on. What David wouldn't share with his mom, he shared with his stepdad, Victor Dominguez. Basically, he was just trying to make sure that we felt comfortable with the situation, I guess. He didn't want us to worry of uh, what he was going through. He was trying to protect you. Yes, yes. He didn't want to worry his mom a lot. But I think the biggest thing was that, you know, he, he always tried to uh, to play it off as it, as it wasn't a bad situation. So, so we wouldn't worry so much. And when David first deployed to Jordan, his mom told us she didn't worry. I guess it was okay in a way because it was, if you could say, peaceful over there at the time when he called and he said they were going to transfer him. With everything going on, with the news and everything, we would he- be hearing everything. Then that's when... I started to get a little bit more, like, serious. The war in Afghanistan impacted relatively few Americans. Less than 1% of the population actually fought in it. David Espinosa was there not two weeks when he was killed. Seeing the news and everything, we were just counting the days for them to come back. It was like five days left for them to come back. We were just counting the days. Do you remember August 26th? Yes. Every day is hard. Every minute, the 26th, I was at work having my break. I see the news. I text my husband, have you seen the news? That day I got off of work. I went to pick up my son. We were gonna have a day out. We were gonna go eat, go get my daughter a gift because on the 27th, it was gonna be her birthday. So as I go pick up my son, my son notices right away, mom, what's wrong with you? So I tell him what's happened. Your brother's over there. I'm just worried. Want to get it over. Like if nobody comes knocking in our house, we're fine. We were hoping for that. A single explosive device detonated by an ISIS-affiliated terrorist killed Lance Corporal Espinosa, 12 other U.S. troops, and at least 170 Afghans. Phone rings, like at 2 a.m. As soon as my phone rang, I knew. I knew. Sure enough, they're outside, and I just lost it. Reflecting on that 2 a.m. knock at the door, Elizabeth told us she somehow must have known it would come. Thinking back on things, now I know that I did some things different that I would never do when he would come home. That last time before deployment, I did something, and now I realize that something told me to, to hug him a little bit more, to hold on a little bit more. I wonder what made you do that. I think it was it was just something in me. I don't know. For Elizabeth Olguin and Victor Dominguez, the parents of David Espinosa, every day is now a struggle. The community, the all over, has been so supportive. so supportive. They actually, through our congressman, they actually donated this home for us, which was 
a blessing. Congressman Henry Cuellar represents the district in and around Laredo, where Espinosa was from. It's very hard to come up with the words. Uh, you know, you give the condolences, you give the prayers. So how do you go from the Rio Bravo El Ceniso area uh, to all the way across the world and have a son uh, from that area, uh, Rio Bravo, get killed half across the world in Kabul, uh, Afghanistan? It's very hard. And it's just trying to find the right words is, can be very, very difficult. So instead of words, Cuellar saw to it that Espinosa's family received a home. It was just amazing how people just came across the state, Laredo, and outside the state uh, to honor David. Isn't that the best of America? Isn't that what we should be doing for, for anybody who, who, who serves and gives in this way? It is amazing the generosities that Americans can give, uh, the generosities where people who don't even know who David Lee Espinosa or his family, but there are people that just said, I want to help. The new family home includes donated appliances and furniture, prepaid taxes and insurance, and enough room for all five of David Espinosa's surviving relatives, including his brothers and sister and his parents, Elizabeth and Victor. At the beginning, you know, the pain was unbearable because it had just happened. The support from, from all over the United States, you know, whether it was people writing letters, you know, even the local schools doing posters and stuff. It, it meant a lot. It made sure that we felt that we weren't alone. When we spoke to Victor and Elizabeth, they sat against a wall in their home decorated with pictures of David and tokens of remembrance sent from all over. This is their first Memorial Day without him. Keeping his memory alive is what brings in me happiness. I don't know at this time what I would be doing on Memorial Day. Honestly, sir, I think in our home, every day is a Memorial Day. We're never going to forget. We're telling stories about honor, hope, and healing this Memorial Day. E.J. Becker in Kansas City tells us those words describe the life and service of one very remarkable Marine. A Marine who knows, as does his son, that he is lucky and blessed to be alive. One night we were under a heavy shelling on Guadalcanal. He and his foxhole buddy got up after a night of naval shelling. My buddy and I got out of our foxhole. About eight feet in front of their foxhole was a... Was a... 14-inch naval shell that didn't explode. Dud. Had that thing not been a dud. He wouldn't have been here. We wouldn't be having this conversation today. That was 1942. Max DeWeese was 21. And I certainly appreciate you taking the time to come to this celebration. I don't think we'll do this again. This was March 20th, this year, the day Max turned 100 years old. And it's been quite the century. We used to ride partway to school on the back of the ice wagon, horse-drawn. The son of a preacher, Max grew up in St. Paul, Minnesota. We didn't have bad weather days in those days. We had a period of 20 days that it didn't get above 20 below zero. And we went to school every school day. Moved south. We lived in Atlanta, Georgia at the time. I remember mother and my sister and I going to the parade for Charles Lindbergh when 
he returned from his solo flight to Paris. And of course, remembers how the world changed one day when he was 20 in junior college. I didn't graduate with my class. I couldn't pass chemistry. Bill Eisendorf, the professor, had given me the test, I think, three times, and I never couldn't pass the damn thing. And I was in Oklahoma City when Pearl Harbor was attacked. I ran into my professor. He asked me what I was going to do, and I said, well, I really don't know. He said, well, why don't you join the Marine Corps? January 15th, signed up that morning. I was aboard a train that night to San Diego boot camp. I went aboard ship uh, Mother's Day 1942 and lived aboard that sucker and from then until August 7th when we landed at the canal. Max was with the first company to land on Japanese soil. Guadalcanal, Tinian, Saipan, Tarawa, three years in the Pacific. I weighed about 165 pounds when we landed. When we left the island, I weighed 135 pounds. I'd had everything but malaria. There were probably more men, well, I know there were more men evacuated for malaria than there were for battle wounds. These were some of the fiercest battles of the Pacific. Max saw them firsthand and survived them. I've got two Purple Hearts. I'm not going to talk about them. It didn't take you long to realize it's either them or me, and it's not going to be me if I can help it. And a memory that is both vivid and haunting. There's stuff you won't tell anyone. Don DeWeese is Max's son. The horrors he saw, the friends he lost, they talk about survivor's guilt. He knows he was blessed to survive. So many did not. When I came back to the States after 33 months, I ran into Bill Eisendorf. His chemistry professor from before the war. He said, Max, if you want to, you can go to the junior college office and pick up your diploma. You now have passed chemistry. I passed it. The hard way. After Max's four-year hitch, he went into the reserves and was among the first troops called back up. Having survived his stint in World War II as a flamethrower, one of the deadliest jobs he could have had, he became a weapons instructor during Korea, stayed stateside, and met Sue. I went to choir practice, and she was there with her sister, and I asked her if she wanted to go have a Coke. Her sister said, no, you don't need to walk home with me. I can get there all right. You go with him. And so we went to the corner drugstore, Falls Graph at 18th and Central, and had a Coke. When did you know? I don't know that I ever knew until Sue said, uh, what are you doing November the 8th? And I said, I don't know why. And she says, I've already got the church reserved for a wedding. Max and Sue had a daughter, Becky, and a son, Don. They were married 69 years. As Max's career in accounting took him from the John Deere Plow Company to the Kansas City Athletics Baseball Club and beyond, climbing the ladder all the way. He retired over 30 years ago and hasn't slowed down since. I still drive, take meals on wheels to 9 to 12 people. You're 100 years old and you take meals on wheels to people. Yeah, and they're all younger than me. There's one on my nose in the 90s, has to be because she was a Marine in uh, World War II. So he serves like as the chaplain in the Marine Corps League. Frank Ice is a retired Marine and major in the Lenexa, Kansas Police Department. He's active in the Salvation Army, the Commemorative Air Force, his church. He plays golf on Friday, and he's part of the Poker and Bridge Club. You don't see many people that are still giving back so much to their community at that age. 
because he never slows down. Max is also very active in a group called FISH. Friends in Service of Heroes, who has given away to service or service families over 35 service dogs. I don't know how many electric wheelchairs. I don't know how many houses we've gone into and done some remodeling so a wheelchair could maneuver. Vehicles that people have donated that we've had remodeled so that a person in a wheelchair could get in and out and be transported. 75 years after he left the battlefields of the Pacific, Max continues to serve both fellow servicemen and women and others. And when Max needs help, like he did a year ago, just after his 99th birthday, they rally around him too. All of a sudden I lost my appetite. Food didn't taste good and I talked to the manager here and she took my oxygen. It was 84. Okay. I called my doctor. He called that evening and said, you tested positive. I went to the hospital the next day. Max had made it 99 years, survived some of the fiercest battles of World War II, including hand-to-hand combat. Was he worried about COVID-19? Not particularly. I knew that the mortality rate was greater among senior citizens, but, you know, I figured that I've lived a full life. If this is the time, this is the time. Why worry about it? And nobody that knows him was surprised a few weeks later when Max, having stared down COVID-19, walked out of the hospital to return to independent living, where he lives today. Actually, Max may have been a little surprised by what awaited him outside the hospital that morning. There was a fire truck out there with the big American flag. There were Marines there. Uh, we sang in the Marine Corps hymn. And a lot of people from the church and from Fish were there. It was a complete surprise to me. One thing Max is looking forward to in a post-COVID world is getting back into schools, talking to young people, and telling them why he thinks the service and sacrifice of the greatest generation is so very important still today. Two and probably three generations of young people have no idea, no conception of the sacrifices that have been made for them to abuse the liberties that they have. Ask him what he's proudest of, and Max will say he's almost 70 years married to Sue. In his life of honor, hope, and healing, Max DeWeese has been many things to many people. Husband, father, friend, man of deep faith, volunteer, golfer, and mentor. And of course, singer, especially when it comes to his favorite song. We are proud to bear the title of United States Marine. Nearly everywhere on Memorial Day, you'll see the American flag at half-staff, at schools, government buildings, neighborhoods, and homes. In New Jersey, ABC's Derek Dennis introduces us to one homeowner who takes pride in displaying all kinds of flags year-round as a history lesson and as a tribute to those who lived, fought, and died for this country. You're listening to history waving in the wind. I don't know, I was just always interested in like history of America and flags just kind of way it became a way of, uh, you know, kind of connecting to that history. It's now 39-year-old Michael Carloni's hobby. We have friends who used to make fun of me. I had an old man hobby. Habit. Got older, made more money, was able to uh, collect them. And his way of honoring the country's fallen on Memorial Day 
and every day. Uh, people take a lot for granted today. I mean, I think it's unfortunate that people kind of lose the meaning of some of, our, some of our holidays, some of the flags, some of our history. It was more of an opportunity to kind of like educate or remind people. His front yard in a leafy suburban subdivision of Wayne, New Jersey, unmistakable. It's beautiful. With a regulation size flagpole pointed 25 feet skyward, front and center. The kind you'd find at a city hall or in a schoolyard. Your neighbors, you know, kind of know you as the flag guy? Or? Yeah, they do. Uh, I think most get a kick out of it. Some probably wonder uh, what flag is flying today. He's got dozens of them. Ooh, over 40, 45-ish. The red and white striped Sons of Liberty flag. The golden New Jersey state flag with its ornate coat of arms. And of course, the good old stars and bars of America, just to name a few. I find a flag, I read about it. You know, there's always a meaning, there's a color, there's a pattern. It stems from something. So I think that's probably what draws me to the flags. You know, why it, why it was designed that way. Why were the colors used and things like that. But there are rules to handling flags that Carloni takes seriously. So-called flag etiquette, according to the U.S. flag code. On Memorial Day, the American flag is flown at half-staff until noon and then raised fully. Year-round, handlers are not to dip or tilt a flag downward for any person, other flag, or vessel. The flag should never touch the ground and it should never be flown upside down. No carrying of the flag flat or carrying things inside. And be careful not to store it anywhere it can get dirty. Where do you so, keep them? <laughs> I have a closet full and the bags and boxes that they come in. I keep repurposing uh, different boxes. Sure enough, he unpacked one right out of one of those boxes. A fresh American flag unfolded gingerly and raised up his flagpole. The screeching noise of the rope against the metal attracting attention. You see neighbors walking dogs down the street, always looking as they pass. But it's when he flies an out-of-state flag that draws the most interest. Look, you know, down south, out west, they have a couple of recognizable state flags. You know, you go to Texas, you go to Maryland. Um, I think it inspires a lot of people to be a little more proud of where they're from, be a little more interested or involved in their communities. Um, so I think as you read about those connections, you can kind of connect to different pieces of American history. You know, um, the initial colonialism of America, you know, through the Civil War. I mean, but they re that really got us to where we are today. Every flag coming at a cost. Is this an expensive hobby? Uh, it could be. I mean, they could be anywhere up to $150, $180 for a 6x10, 5x8 flag. And a payoff, a conversation starter. Oh, it's actually two flags. Yeah. For anyone who stops to see and ask about the sacrifices, the stories, the service of the men and women who gave their lives for our country. You now it's turned into more of like a celebratory holiday, a party weekend. You know, I think people forget that it's really meant to honor the people that died, you know, giving service to our country. Carloni says that's what Memorial Day should really be about. Derek Dennis, ABC News. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. 
That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here is ABC's Aaron Katursky. On this Memorial Day, we mark the military service of Americans who made the ultimate sacrifice. For some of us, that will mean turning honor into action. As we share stories of honor, hope, and healing this Memorial Day, there is one person who has made it his mission in life to facilitate healing for as many military veterans and first responders as possible. It is the actor Gary Sinise. You may remember him from his roles in Forrest Gump or CSI New York. He talked to ABC's Jason Nathanson about how his day job helped him find his true calling. Aaron, among Gary Sinise's most popular roles and the one that made the military fall in love with him is that of Lieutenant Dan from Forrest Gump. Lieutenant Dan! What are you doing here? Well, thought I'd try out my sea legs. Well, you ain't got no legs, Lieutenant Dane. Yes, I know that. We first meet him as a hard-charging military officer during the Vietnam War, who then loses his legs in combat before returning home to the U.S., where he struggles with his place in the world. And it's a role that Sinise tells me called him to service. That, no question about that. I mean, it was a career-changing part, for sure, but but it also led me to the DAV, I would say, first of all, because the DAV, uh, you know, started, you know, a hundred years ago or something uh, to support wounded veterans coming back from World War One. I. I didn't know anything about the DAV, and all of a sudden I'm standing on a stage and the, the first page of my book, Grateful American, is about going to their national convention in 1994 where they wanted to give me an award for playing Lieutenant Dan. And I walked out there and there's there's 2,000 real-life Lieutenant Dans in this ballroom. And it was galvanizing for sure. And, you know, it was they gave me their National Commander's Award for playing Lieutenant Dan. And I was very moved by that, very humbled by that, very... Uh, emotional about it and it really was life-changing in, in a way and set the stage for what would happen after September 11th when you know we had all these new Lieutenant Dan's coming home from Iraq and Afghanistan and they needed help and I wanted to I wanted to try to use what I had uh, to go out there and help them and that meant doing fundraisers, starting his own Lieutenant Dan Band to play USO shows, that's Sinise on bass, and eventually forming the Gary Sinise Foundation in 2009. The Gary Sinise Foundation serves and honors the needs of the men and women who serve our country, defend our country, and protect our cities. And, and uh, I, ha having so many veterans in my family, on both my side of the family and my wife's side of the family, I'm just very focused on that. I have been for several years, and after September 11th, 2001 when we were attacked and we started deploying and 
people started getting hurt and we started losing people and I just felt compelled to get involved and I did that by getting involved with multiple military nonprofits nonprofits that are building homes for our wounded that are supporting our gold star families and then after several years of that and finding that as a celebrity as somebody in the public eye I could really shine a light on what they were doing and actually draw attention raise awareness for what they were doing and so that's why I created the Gary Sneeze Foundation so that I could actually ask for the generosity of the American people uh to donate to the Gary Sinise Foundation ask ask them to help and then I could spread that generosity to others what do you think is the most important or pressing need right now for those families the the first thing is that we just shouldn't forget that we have people that are out there 24 hours a day seven days a week defending us in in different ways and they continue to sacrifice uh greatly um uh, and they continue to face challenges because of the sacrifices they've already made. For example, Afghanistan. Look at Afghanistan. You've got you've got you know hundreds of thousands, over a million. I mean, uh, that served in Afghanistan during a 20-year period, and then we hand it back to the Taliban, and they go in there and they're doing their business as usual for the Taliban. And you've got a bunch of Afghanistan veterans wondering what that was all about and uh, when you give somebody a mortgage-free home who is physically challenged in a way where they're they used to make a living doing something they love and now they can't do it anymore and they're wondering how they're going to support their family and take care of them giving them a mortgage-free home as a gift from the american people can be very very meaningful to them and really uh, a big big uplift and we've done that we just handed over our 77th home uh, to one of our wounded uh, just a couple of weeks ago. A lot of people see suffering, but they don't necessarily act to end it. What motivated you to put your own time and energy into this? I would say uh, heartbreak, you know. I remember those airplanes going into those buildings. I remember the people jumping out of the windows. I remember the 343 firefighters that were killed and then, you know, the total number of first responders in, 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 in New York City, 417 of them killed on that day. I remember what happened at the Pentagon. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that. It was, li- it was life-changing what happened all those years ago. And so I just wanted to play a role, you know, I just, I just felt like You know, there was a moment. I was standing in our little Catholic church about um, three days after September 11th, and uh, President Bush had had called for a um, national day of prayer for the nation. And these houses of worship across the nation were just jam-packed. Everybody was looking for ways to process what we had witnessed on television or God forbid being there in person. And people were looking for ways to process that. And and we went to our our little church and I was standing there just sobbing through the service. And and something just has happened that day where I I don't even remember if the priest had actually said this or not, or I I I just felt it or something, but I knew that service was going to be a 
healer for me. That I'd never, you know, that maybe the 80s and 90s were just kind of setting the stage for what would happen later on. This year, the Gary Sinise Foundation is moving from California to Nashville, Tennessee. And Sinise tells me that after a couple of years of not being able to play shows on military bases because of the pandemic, the Lieutenant Dan Band is back out now in full force, bringing music, hope, and healing wherever it's needed. Jason Athenson, ABC News. Hollywood. Service often begins in the community where we live, and the need is great during these uncertain times. One Eagle Scout in Connecticut is using his scout project to help tackle food insecurity in his hometown. ABC's Michelle Franzen has his story. Inside his dad's garage in New Milford, Connecticut, Alex Rigdon is putting the final touches on his Eagle Scout project. The team crafted wooden pantry cupboards that will become standalone food sources for those in need in his community. Just in time for Memorial Day, he and his dad, Chris, are measuring the drilling holes to attach to the posts and doing some extra hammering. So all four of these boxes took me 52 and a half hours of my own time and then 119 hours collectively with all my helpers, scouts, parents, grandparents. Alex's project grew out of an idea his mom, Lynette, spotted on Facebook. He ran with it. He was very excited when it came across. He had been looking for a very long time for something that would be meaningful to him. Rooted in the scout mission to help and serve others. So it's a box. It has a plexiglass door on it. Which is awesome. The need was something that struck Alex when he volunteered with his parents at a local food donation site during the pandemic called Camilla's Cupboard. You, you don't really see it until you're actually there at the distribution site, seeing how many people actually come for help. If you don't put yourself out there to help, you're probably not going to notice how many people need help. So it's a box. It has The purple waist-high structures, complete with plexiglass doors, shelves, even shingles, will be attached to posts and placed at various churches and other organizations. The materials either donated or paid for through fundraising. It stuck out to me, just serving the community like this, giving back to needy people of the community. Those food pantries are dubbed blessing boxes and are an offshoot of Camilla's Cupboard mission. Do you want to go out? Angie Chastain created the nonprofit a few years before the COVID lockdowns began, providing lunches for school kids in need. She named it after her mom. And she grew up very poor. She was one of, of seven children, and, you know, she talked for our, our entire childhoods, uh, my brother and I, about not having enough food to eat and going to bed hungry and watching other kids at lunch, um, eat their lunch, and she had nothing. So that stuck with you. According to Feed America, the pandemic forced roughly 60 million Americans nationwide to seek help for food insecurity. Chastain says when the lockdowns occurred, she shifted to feeding families, creating a drive-up location in town. It's about 23,000 people. We're a very rural town, a lot of working-class folks. Both parents work in most situations. Everyday average America what you think in New Melford. And that's where we are on this rainy day. A steady stream of cars driving up. An army of volunteers hard at work, grabbing paper bag lunches for kids and boxes and bags of produce, milk, eggs, and other staples. Every family gets a produce box that has greens, vegetables, fruits. One of the local grocery stores gives us leftover desserts. It's a system where people can keep a low profile. Chastain says something that's important within this close-knit community. I had always suspected that hunger was easily hidden. 
and I thought there were probably more people here in need than at first appearance there seemed to be and that I think was definitely the case. You know, we serve that kind of in-between area, so people who really make too much for social services, the, the traditional social services, but yet not enough to really kind of get by. How many people would you say fall into that gap of food insecurity? About 40% of our students are on free or reduced lunch, um, so then probably another 25 to 30% fall into that in-between in our, in our town. She's noticed more people have started to come again with the rising costs of gas and food. A lot of people say that, you know, we have really helped them out immensely. Um, they didn't know what they were going to do with, you know, their cutting hours or they lost their job and they, you know, were really desperate. The one thing that really struck me was the desperateness of people when they came. I mean, you could just see the panic in their face that we were going to run out of food or they weren't going to get anything. The food donation site is open a few times a week, but the pantry boxes Alex made will allow people to come anytime, take what they need and others to give what they can. I'm going to run a can drive to fill these two, so I'll be able to see how many people are actually willing to donate to it in the community, and I hope that's a big number. Alex and his dad brought one of the pantry boxes to the donation site for Angela and volunteers to see. So exciting. So neat. This is our blessing box. Alex made it. Whoa. Isn't that a piece of work? You made it? Yeah, there's three more of them. Angela said to me that a lot of people don't go to get help because they're scared to be recognized by the community. So the main point to these is to be out there 24-7 and people can come to them contact free. There won't be any fear behind it. They just come grab a can and go on with their day. A community and project that keeps giving from one generation to the next. Michelle Franzen, ABC News. Aaron? The pandemic helped many of us realize what we can and cannot do without. Skipped vacations, luxury items, even some essentials. But for many Americans, the ability to participate in some of life's big moments can sometimes be out of reach. ABC's Andy Field talked with folks who are changing that, one prom dress at a time. Remember Cinderella's pumpkin makeover? Magically morphed into a horse-drawn Uber, giving her a lift to meet Prince Charming. That modern magic happens every prom season in many cities, including Franklin, Tennessee, not far from Nashville. I was teaching in inner city metro, and there was a program that did something similar for high school juniors and seniors, young ladies that couldn't afford prom dresses and such like that. They could barely even afford their lunch. They are just going to try on their dresses. We have five changing rooms. So Lauren Murphy raided her closet and her daughter's. She called neighbors, enlisted local stores, and became the local fairy godmother, helping several hundred teens realize their unaffordable prom dreams. I found out about Operation Fairy Godmother through my school. They posted a bunch of links for us to find prom attire for people who might not be able to afford it. 18-year-old Anna Baldwin never dreamed she'd need help getting a prom dress or anything else. Her dad had a job, her mom's in school for an advanced nursing degree, and then the pandemic took it away. Suddenly, buying anything wasn't easy. My dad had to start over for sure. The income we were relying on, it just stopped. We kind of started to stress out about what we were going to do for graduation and prom stuff. Anna faced missing an event most teens take for granted. And then, much like Cinderella. A dream is a wish your heart made. It seemed pretty hopeless. 
and finding a dress, but Lauren got me an appointment right away. As soon as I walked in, it was like the best thing I could have asked for. Operation Fairy Godmother director Lauren Murphy says it's the least she could do when so many struggle. We cried after the very first day and started the very first young lady and so many of my volunteers saying we're going to need more tissues. A lot of these young ladies, this is the first time they've ever had a dress. Some of them come from foster care. A lot of these young ladies felt that maybe they're not beautiful because they've been in situations where it's just a struggle for them. And the last thing they want to think about is them looking good. And with the pandemic fading and his dad's back at work, her mom will soon be back to full-time nursing and they're ready to grab their own fairy godmother wand. We want to be part of this. We want to help out. Like this was, this kind of turned around this whole last six, seven, eight weeks for us. She's just so excited. And, um, I told her I'm going to donate the amount of money I had planned on spending on her dress because for someone who is looking at the possibility of not being able to participate at all, this could be a real game changer for them. These things are important to these kids. Like when you move on as an adult and you're like, oh yeah, it was just this one night. But for these kids, especially these last two or three years, this is something they really look forward to. For those not used to receiving this generosity, it's often a shock to realize someone you don't know cares. People intrinsically, I think, want to do good and want to help. And this ultimately wasn't just a positive experience for us. It was positive for the people that were providing the service. It was positive for the people that were, you know, receiving the service. Don't be afraid to take part in these things. These people put these organizations together to help someone. Help comes in lots of different ways. This Cinderella story doesn't happen just here in Franklin, Tennessee. Godmothers across the nation are transforming that annual event in many other cities. I'm so lucky to have such great volunteers that I don't have to wave my wand. I just kind of get to stand back and reap the benefits of these smiles and these family members that go with them. It's such an amazing feeling. Operation Fairy Godmother, as soon as we walked in, come in, come in, what's your name? What school do you go to? What size are you? And they were, it, they made it very personal and super fun. And they allowed my mom to come in and help me try on my dress and everything. I wouldn't have traded that experience for anything. Honestly, the experience of buying the dress turned out to be almost even more fun than the actual dance. I'm Andy Field, ABC News. Honor, hope, and healing from ABC News Radio. Once again, here is correspondent Aaron Katursky. It takes ordinary people to be compassionate, creative, and committed to figuring out how to solve inequalities. That's just what one coffee chain is doing by serving up caffeine and smiles while creating jobs for people with disabilities. Here's ABC's Lionel Moise with that story. Walk down any street in any city and you're bound to find a coffee shop, but you'll likely not find one as unique as this. What makes this shop one of a kind is that they only hire people with intellectual or physical disabilities, but it's also bigger than that. It's a human rights movement disguised as a coffee shop. Biddy and Bo's Coffee was started in 2016 by Amy and Ben Wright, the parents of four kids, three of which were born with a disability. They're two youngest, Biddy and Bo. You, know, you start thinking about what your children's future looks like, and one of the obstacles people with disabilities face is uh, meaningful employment. And so, you know, we started thinking about creating some opportunity in our own community. That's Amy Wright, and their community is Wilmington, North Carolina, where the first shop opened. We decided this could be a great place to bring people 
with and without disabilities together and give the customer an opportunity to interact with someone with a disability, perhaps for the first time in their life, and start to see people with disabilities differently. Ben says he hopes that it's something other businesses will also start doing. The message we're trying to send to the business world is, hey, look, you're business people. You're smart. You're creative. Apply that same creativity to this issue. Start to innovate your systems and your processes and your procedures around people with disabilities so that they have the ability to be successful in whatever work you're hiring them to do. According to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, 19.1% of Americans with a disability were employed in 2021, compared to 63.7% of people without one. Amy says that number is low, not because people with disabilities don't want to work, but because opportunities have not existed. When we announce we're opening a new shop, and we host a hiring fair, um, we're inundated by applicants who want to work at our coffee shops. And most of them have no prior job experience. They just bring their you know, best foot forward and willingness to learn something new. And we work with them to, to train them and to be prepared for running a coffee shop. It's a very grateful workforce. The first store in Wilmington had 19 employees. They are now up to 12 shops with another 15 in various stages of construction. One of the newest stores is in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, which opened last November. When we visited, Emily, Nick, Kyle, and Walter were a, running um, the shop. Iced coffee with skim milk, please. Right. Emily was on the cash register. I love working here. I like all the all the people here, especially all my employees and all those demo managers and everything that I like. That has been great. She told us there's always entertainment going on. We like to sing and dance. For, for the people, sometimes we take pictures. We do tons of stuff, like during the holidays, we uh, we do Christmas songs, something like that. I'll be three dollars and fifty-five cents. Walter mixed up the iced coffee. I like working with people; they're very understanding. I used to work for um, Little Caesars Pizza doing waving outside, and it wasn't fulfilling. And when he learned he was being hired, I was excited. I haven't felt excited before about any job. Walter also loves interacting with the customers who come in. They're happy to be here. They want to be here. They want their coffee, but we serve them very nicely, kind, and, and they come back. And Nick called out the drink when it was ready. Good face. Great. Thanks so much. Hey, good day. You too. This is the experience Amy and Ben want to bring, whether it's regulars or a person coming in for the first time, and it's that second group they love the most. They just see coffee shop and they think, oh, I'm going to grab a smoothie or a frappe or an Americano or an iced latte, whatever they, they want. And they walk in and you see them go through this process of what's going on in here. This is a little bit different. You know, we have our TV monitors kind of looping our story and and our merchandise and our different slogans, not broken and radically inclusive and things like that. And they go, hmm, what's happening here? You can't unfeel what you feel and you can't unsee what you see. And it's just a, it's a very intensely visceral experience if you let it be. Neither Ben nor Amy thought the first coffee shop would grow to what it's become today. Now their goals are much bigger. They hope to have at least one shop in every state and eventually go international. The world is not built for people with disabilities, by and large, especially intellectual and developmental disabilities. It's not built for them. And being out in the world is difficult and it's tough and it shouldn't be like that. You know, it's the old ramp versus the stairs notion. Most everybody can go up and down a ramp, 
but not everybody can go up and down stairs. So why don't we build ramps? Lionel Moyes, ABC News. Should we be defined by our finest hour or by our worst moments? ABC's Daria Albinger introduces us to a man who may now walk the straight and narrow, but who certainly knows what it's like to go astray. He reminds us we all have the ability to heal old wounds. They say you can find angels all around us if you know where to look. And if that's the case, there may be one living right next door to me. My neighbor Anthony, he's the guy who's always ready to help. A devoted father and husband. If you have something heavy, he's ready to literally shoulder the burden. Volunteers at the local food bank. And when my husband nearly died from COVID a year ago, it was Anthony, not the EMTs, who got him safely into the ambulance. So it wouldn't be a stretch to say that Anthony is living his best life. But that wasn't always the case. He spent more than a dozen years behind bars. Drugs. It happened several decades ago. A friend of mine when I was living in PA, he came up. I haven't seen him in a while. I didn't want to be involved. And after badgering me for a couple of months, I got involved. And he paid the price. How many years did you spend in prison? Fifteen and a half. But if Anthony can turn his life around, can anyone? Is redemption a given if you put the work in? And just what does that work entail? Redemption to me is is really a moment of self-awareness that takes us on a different journey. And sometimes redemption comes with a little bit of shame. Sometimes it comes with a little bit of guilt. But, you know, those are sort of like a bit of an internal GPS system that just kind of remind us to take a U-turn. It's kind of the moment when we realize we're not taking steps in the direction that aligns with our values, our hopes, our dreams, and the purpose. Dr. Roxanne Lowe is a psychologist based in Jacksonville, Florida. Her husband, Father Nicholas Lowe, is a Greek Orthodox priest. The, the definition of redeeming is is basically once a payment is being made on behalf of someone else. In the case of our lives, you know, that we we talk about the fact that we are all we've all been sold under our own sin. We we've we have been held captive by that sin. She's treated and they've counseled hundreds of people over the years. You know, I think it's easy to to keep spilling our milk and rather than stepping back and looking at why we're spilling the milk. Do we have the tools to stop spilling our milk? Do we have the capacity to change that behavior? So everyone has the capacity for change, um, but it begins with a level of self-awareness and studying ourselves enough to know what's wrong, why it's wrong and how we grow from making it right. Mm -hmm. So you don't necessarily believe that people are hardwired to behave a certain way, that they really can't change their ways. You hear the word plastic, right? Our brains are plastic, which means we can create new neural pathways, new highways, um, new connections. And the more we do something, the more that becomes a physiologically ingrained pathway in our brains. Without trying to sound too preachy, redemption is is an awareness of our own desire that we need to change our ways. We need to look at what we've done wrong, own it, repent from it, but grow from it. And while most of us may not have gone to prison, we've probably done or said at least a few things that we regret. Dr. Lowe says we can put some of those same ideas into practice in our daily lives. When you look at an individual, you know, um, I do think we have to be brought to our knees in order to be able to stand it back up. Father Nicholas adds, like so many things, you just have to keep moving forward. Guilt is like a treadmill. You, you do a lot of work, but you don't go anywhere. As for Anthony? I guess it took me a couple of times putting my hands in the fire to finally realize you're better off making slow nickels than fast dimes. And he says he just takes life day by day and it counts as blessings. Whether I was up or down, I never looked my nose down anybody. Never. I just, it's not just the way I am made. Daria Albinger, ABC News.
It's an expression you've undoubtedly heard a lot, giving back to the community. But the implication in that statement is the person who's giving back has first taken from the community. ABC's Jim Ryan introduces us now to a man who's given much more than he's taken. Mr. Pride, how you doing today, sir? Got your lunch for you. Every Thursday, without fail, Mike Freezy makes his rounds. Here's the app. Okay. And so this shows that I've got a delivery today, how many times since they've started tracking, how many meals I've delivered in that time. Um, You've delivered 1,784 meals. Since they've started using the app, yeah. Do you want me to set this stuff on the table? The company Freezy works for sponsors a weekly Meals okay. on Wheels delivery route, but he's taken it to new levels, continuing to drive even after some co-workers have lost interest. For him, helping out goes back to middle school. It was a small Catholic school. A couple of my male classmates were like, hey, we're in Boy Scouts, you should come join us. You'd have a blast. And we went camping and... And, you know, the Boy Scouts promotes doing community service as well. And so it just kind of gave you an appreciation for helping others. And it continued after graduation. Even while I was in the Air Force, they encouraged uh, volunteerism. We were always doing fundraisers and, and, and helping our local community wherever, wherever we're stationed. And that's how, on this Thursday, I ended up riding along with Freezy as he made his deliveries. This is uh, my friend Jim Ryan. To meet people like Faye Shelby, who lives in West Dallas with her brother. It's nice because mostly when I go in there and try to cook, I burn, so we just wait on him. And 71-year-old Alice Fuller, who lives around the corner and eagerly awaits Freezy's weekly food deliveries. Yeah, I, I, every Thursday. Oh, ooh, it's been going on uh, ever since last summer when the pandemic hit here. He was there for me. Since COVID started, it's been very difficult getting volunteers for multiple reasons. You know, people may be afraid for their own health. Um, people were afraid of bringing it back home to their family members if they've got, you know, family members that are elderly or that have uh a compromised immune system. The spirit of volunteerism that Mike Freezy adopted in middle school and fostered through his time in the military has brought him to this neighborhood, his car loaded with meals that will sustain his homebound clients for the next few days. Seeing people that are less fortunate and maybe not just economically, you know, physically less fortunate than me, people who have just such severe arthritis, they can't open a can of soup. You're handing them their food and, you know, they've only got one good hand and they can barely, you know, take it out of your hand. You know, it's it, it's heart wrenching, but it also makes it feel good that at least I could do something for this person. Even soaring gas prices haven't discouraged him from making his weekly deliveries. And Meals on Wheels coordinators say rising gas prices have not cut into their core of volunteers in a noticeable way. You might not drive across country if gas is $4 a gallon, but I don't think it makes a difference to people just driving around their own community doing what they do normally. Now, they may gripe about it. You know, they probably have to make some adjustments otherwhere in their budget for to accommodate it. But, but you know, that's that's my perspective. Maybe I'm just fortunate enough where it doesn't impact me that much right now. Plus, you know, then you think, okay, if I don't do it, who's going to do it? Mike Freezy delivers more than just food to the sick and the elderly. He brings companionship. You know, we get to have a conversation. We get to entertain each other. He talks to me about my plant. And I get to talk to him about things that matter. He keeps me lively. He keeps me active. You know, and plus he brings me a good meal every now and then. 
Notice that 68-year-old Richard Henry puts the meal last after the conversation that Freezy offers him. When you get to be my age, not many people come by that want to entertain and talk to you. You know, they either want to feel pity for you, they think that you have gotten slow and you're forgetful, or you're long-winded like I am. But he talks to me. He actually shares with me, and he treats me like I'm still a human being. Somehow I'm important to these people, and, you know, I'm just trying to help them a little bit. And, and that gives me satisfaction that I can help them. Makes the rest of my life seem worthwhile. And remember Alice Fuller? She doesn't even mention the food that Freezy delivers to her door every Thursday. He coming because I love him. I had hip surgery and stuff. It's a benefit for me and the elder peoples around here. I love him. And Freezy's spirit of volunteerism is generational. I took my daughter with me for uh, delivering on Thanksgiving. And uh, <clears throat> I was having my daughter go up and deliver them, and she came back in tears. <laughs> she said, uh, the lady said, oh, I'm so glad you showed up. I thought I was going to have to have cereal. And to realize people, people are, actually live that way. Honor, hope, healing, and helping the people in his community. Air Force veteran Mike Freezy. Jim Ryan, ABC News. This is a special presentation from ABC News Radio. Honor, hope, and healing. Here is ABC's Alex Stone. As we honor stories of service this Memorial Day, we must also take a moment to acknowledge the impact this pandemic has had on our country. Having just reached the milestone of one million American lives lost, one million mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters gone, equal to the entire population of San Jose, California, the 10th largest city in the U.S. Now we're hearing from those who have fought for two years to save lives. When the tent went up, was that unbelievable in your medical career? Only a few months ago, the area I'm standing in was essentially a battlefield hospital. I'm in the parking lot here at Cedar sinai Hospital in Marina Del Rey, California. It was a giant tent with patients being triaged inside, and Dr. Oren Friedman was on the front lines as medical director of the ICU. So there certainly were a lot of patients that were waiting to be seen. Of course, we're lucky to be in Los Angeles that it was feasible to have people outside, which because of the ventilation, et cetera, is going to be a whole lot better in terms of infectious precautions and transmissibility, and there's definite advantages out there. Um, but this particular tent here outside would have uh, been filled with patients that were coming in with various amounts of respiratory complaints and otherwise suspicious for, um, for having COVID that were awaiting testing and waiting to get into the hospital. Today, the big tent is gone. There's a smaller one in its place where a trickle of COVID patients coming in can wait until there's room inside. Most of the area today has been taken over by construction equipment to make the hospital quite a bit bigger. It's a sign of rebirth. The staff here sees it as new hope after a very dark period in their medical careers. Just the amount of patients that we had that needed uh, hospital support and certainly the amount of patients that needed ICU support, it, it, there's never been anything like that. I mean, that, that's just such a such a huge number. We've really never, never felt that way before. This is what you do. Was there a time when, when even you were scared and confused and not knowing what where this was going? You know, and I look back on those early months where we didn't even know how to test for the virus. We certainly didn't know how to treat the virus. 
We certainly didn't know how infectious the virus was and how easy it was to transmit. It, it, it was overwhelming, uh, I think, for any, anyone in the healthcare field. However, we relied on each other. We relied on as much of the literature that was coming out, you know, and we formed groups and committees of people that constantly reviewed the literature and the latest um, that was coming out of the, uh, from, the, from, the, from the science of it. And we continually adopted, but I don't think any of us have ever been in a situation where we had so many people that we were taking care of with a disease that was so novel. Um, and with the information that was just coming out like sort of at lightning speed. Dr. Friedman has a unique perspective. A pulmonary specialist, he saw what was happening to patients' lungs early on in the pandemic. He got COVID and struggled to recover. And he went to New York during the height of spread there, witnessing the horrors of COVID running rampant in a large population. You know, the last two years have been the most challenging time for anyone, certainly in my generation, in, in uh, pulmonary and critical care medicine. In some sense, when we all look back at it, it's, it's a bit like uh, being in an alternate universe. Um, I don't think any of us ever uh, saw so many patients coming in with such a volume, um, certainly of one particular disease. Certainly none of us ever saw the healthcare system so impacted and, and so overwhelmed. So. I think it's going to leave a, a, a permanent mark, I think, in all of our careers. And I think moving forward, we're never going to quite be the same. My fellow Americans. In the early months, so much was unknown. The virus was spreading so rapidly without a vaccine and without many precautions being taken, and many were dying. Today, the World Health Organization officially announced that this is a global pandemic. COVID was killing in Italy and in New York. In mid-March of 2020, President Trump declared a national emergency. Predictions of 100,000 could die were discounted by some, but the numbers kept rising. And on the front lines, doctors and nurses were at war. In the last two years, it's been very overwhelming and can be frightening. Uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, everything was unknown, so we kind of didn't know how to deal with COVID. Morgan Roverud is a nurse in the ICU at Cedars-Sinai. It was definitely scary. A lot of the times I, you know, felt like, how can I do this? But I think with a lot of like the teamwork aspect, especially here at Marina Del Rey, the teamwork and the friendships that you form with the staff and um, other leadership, um, when you feel supported, it just makes everything easier. And it's that teamwork, learning from one another, when so much was unknown that the medical staff says made the difference. When the ICU was overwhelmed, patients were dying and numbers were rising, they were learning. There was a cohesiveness, I suppose, because everyone, everyone was on this uh, same mission together, you know, to take care of all these patients. But it was also sad and at times... It, it felt hopeless. It felt like, are, are we going to make it out of this as a society? Uh, people are just getting sick left and right and dying left and right. Are we ever going to get out of this? That wave of death that Dr. Friedman saw unfolding in New York, he knew was coming to California and elsewhere. And it did wave after wave. And essentially, whenever a patient would check in with any sort of COVID-like symptom, immediately they would get escorted into one of these tents. And there was always a one registered nurse. The halls here at Cedars-Sinai would also become full. The sound of ventilators at work filled the hallways. COVID was killing Americans, but many didn't see it happening or notice refrigerated trucks or body bags that were being brought in. We never quite 
seen that many patients that were that critically ill on ventilators uh, before. Um, so first of all, it was, it was exhausting. The days were long. Everybody was working um, extra shifts, extra hours. People were doubling up on shifts. People were having to be creative, how to marshal resources. In March of 2020, the pandemic became real for many Americans, with schools closing, theme parks shutting down, stores being told to lock their doors, and NBA games being canceled at tip-off. You see the officials conferring here prior to the start of this game. But it didn't take long for restrictions to become political. By mid-April, President Trump was tweeting for states to be liberated, telling Americans to ignore rules and saying the virus will go away. Dr. Friedman says it was difficult to walk out of the hospital here and see people ignoring medical guidance. Probably one of the hardest things, I think, out of any of the healthcare workers, certainly those of us who worked in the intensive care unit, um, there was a temptation, I think, from all of us to run out there and scream and shake people and tell people, do you realize how bad this can be? Do you realize what it looks like inside of the hospital? You should be wearing masks. You should be getting vaccinated. Um, it was enormously frustrating. Um, it made our jobs even that much more difficult because it was, it was sort of felt like you were fighting a war, but when you returned home from the battle, people just simply didn't believe that war was even occurring. And now today, after so much heartache and so many Americans lost to the virus, Dr. Friedman saying a big number of the deaths could have been prevented. The hope that maybe we're done with the worst of it and we can live with COVID. With the vaccines that still work well against variants and the increase in um, antiviral medications that we now have, we should hopefully be able to control some of those numbers better than we have in the past. Now the big tent at this hospital has come down. It's quieter. There are still COVID patients, but not as many. And there is hope and rebirth. Kind of like even like the mask kind of mask mandate lifting. It's kind of like, wow, like, okay, are we, we're coming into a time where we have enough vaccinated individuals in, you know, the United States. It's safe now to kind of go resume our normal life. See, I think a lot of us were happy about that. But they have so many scars from all of the lives lost. It's a staggering number. Uh, I think it's a number that most people have a hard time fathoming, even what a million people would look like. Um, and I think it's, it's also really disappointing as a medical provider to realize that many of those deaths probably didn't need to have happened. This milestone that we're at of one million people lost to COVID is heartbreaking enough, but many health experts say we will be feeling the residual effects of the pandemic for years to come, not only in terms of those who are gone, but in terms of those left behind. Since March of 2020, many of us have experienced feelings of worry, stress, anxiety, grief. Mental health experts say lots of Americans are struggling with those emotions, but at the same time, many are also realizing the importance of taking care of their mental health. And that leads to another feeling, hope. Here's ABC's Sherry Preston. Paige Nelson is a traveling nurse who came from Canada to New York City during the very first COVID wave in April and May of 2020. She left her two young sons and her husband behind. And as I'm flying into New York, I had this moment of like, what on earth am I doing? Like, I've never been to New York City. I've never been in a gigantic city before. 
and then I had this like calm and this peace come over me like you're here for a reason they need your help just know that this is what you're supposed to be doing she stayed for eight weeks in the intensive care unit at Hackensack Meridian Health in New Jersey when she returned home she knew things had changed. I thought it was okay. You know, like, I'm a nurse. Like, this is what we do. Is kind of like what I told myself. But I definitely got depressed. And um, I ended up needing counseling. And um, I started speaking with a lady who deals with trauma specifically. And uh, she diagnosed me with PTSD. Once she explained it to me, of course, I was like, yeah, that's uh, all the symptoms that I'm dealing with. Not everyone who has struggled to maintain their mental health during the pandemic has had post-traumatic stress disorder, but a lot of us are still struggling with everything that's happened. According to the World Health Organization, in the first year of the pandemic alone, there was a 25% increase in the prevalence of anxiety and depression worldwide. Dr. Dave Choksi was New York City's health commissioner during the pandemic. He says even members of his own family felt the effects. It's hard not to, you know, get emotional when you think about about all of those effects and the loss, you know, that so many, so many people have experienced. In fact, Choksi says the epidemic of depression has taken a toll that may not be talked about as frequently, but is still there. Loneliness and isolation are health issues uh, and they have an impact on how we feel and our well-being. In the beginning, it was losing jobs and livelihoods and learning to work from home, sometimes while taking care of children, sometimes completely alone. Then as more people became sick, more of us lost relatives and friends. All of it has been a lot, says Dr. Amy Service, director of clinical content at the online therapy platform Talkspace. It's a struggle on our mental health. It's a struggle on our relationships. It's a struggle on our finances. There are so many things um, that are all incorporated into one. Her app lets people reach out when they need help. Sometimes, though, it's hard to ask for help. Dimple Cavati Berger is an integrated wellness coach from Creskill, New Jersey. She says her clients aren't necessarily telling her they need professional help. But I have seen just in my clients alone, people asking for more referrals. You know, people just starting to recognize that there's a fear that is that is lingering within them or there's just, you know, this feeling of just wanting to be done with this whole period. Part of the increase in stress, anxiety and depression is that we humans are perpetual worriers. And part of the reason for that, experts say, is the ceaseless flow of information we're constantly getting from our phones. Throughout the pandemic, how many of you found yourselves checking the latest numbers on COVID infections, hospitalizations and deaths? Ohio State psychology professor Dr. Kenneth Yeager says the phenomenon of endlessly checking your phone and seeing negative news is called doom scrolling. We're drawn to the negative. We are drawn to see the negative. We're intrigued by it. But the, the phenomena of doom scrolling is something that has such a negative impact on the mental health of the individual. And while you don't initially understand or see it happening, you begin to view the world as a much less safe place. That's why it's so important to balance the emotions that we experience with the positive as well as the negative. The collective trauma we've all experienced is also not exclusive to adults. These past two years have been so hard on younger people that the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychology, and the Children's Hospital Association have all declared a national emergency in children's mental health, citing the pandemic in addition to other challenges that younger Americans were already facing. Being out of school and away from face-to-face -face contact from friends has been huge. 
Student mental health is just one of the multiple things the nation's schools have been facing since the original lockdowns in March of 2020 when the pandemic first began. With more on how all of it has upended the American education system, here's ABC's Michelle Franzen. Sherry, whether it's high school, middle, or elementary level, COVID twisted the learning curve for tens of thousands of students. It was a nightmare. I felt really bad because I felt like they would think it was a reflection on me. Francie Haskell's son Joseph fell behind when New York City went into lockdowns and switched to remote learning, tuning out when he logged on for classes, sometimes playing video games and more times than not missing assignments. I think the problem was he was getting distracted. Haskell says she didn't learn Joseph had fallen behind until later. He's having to repeat seventh grade, so he's doing seventh and eighth grade at the same time right now. She says her younger son Samuel took to remote learning more easily and his grade grades did not slide. The Center for School and Student Progress tracks school testing and performance. A December report showed middle school kids nationwide scored between 9 and 11 percentile points lower in math during the pandemic and between 3 and 7 points lower in reading compared to historic averages. Another study shows testing scores from 2019 to 2021. One in three elementary students from kindergarten through third grade fell below the reading averages and need intensive training to achieve goals at their grade level. The pandemic took a toll on both students and teachers. Nobody was prepared for uh, for COVID to happen. Patrick Quinn is a parenting expert at Brainly, an educational resource for students and teachers. It took a little while for all of the school districts all across the country to figure out what their plan was, to figure out a new way of getting the message, getting the teaching out to the kids. And then from there, it trickles down to the actual teachers. He says their research echoes similar studies showing students already challenged with lack of academic support or access to computers during remote learning were likely impacted even more. You kind of see the anxiety levels raise up the further along in the school they are. Um, because then things become a little more real. You know, there's there's actual consequences for maybe not getting into a college you want to get to into or, you know, understanding that your professional life, your early professional life is going to be affected by what you're doing now. But Quinn says kids learned a lot, too, about themselves and are resilient. He says many schools and outside programs are offering extra support so students can make up for some of that lost time. There always is a chance to catch up. Um, Um, And even if it's just to get to the bare minimum of what a student might need. Back in New York, Haskell says she's seen the change this year. Joseph, who once struggled with remote learning, is now homeschooling, taking online classes and turning his grades around. He's doing really well. He's getting uh, all A's. Experts say summer may be the best time to keep your child active in programs or tutoring or just reading on their own to help them reach grade level learning or get a jump on the next school year. Alex? Thank you, Michelle. Our kids have been so greatly impacted. The pandemic sparked widespread concern about our health, but it also brought with it uncertainty over our finances, massive turnover, supply chain issues, huge swings in the stock market. They've all become almost commonplace in the two-plus years since COVID landed on our shores. But the virus may have also sparked a change in the very way we think about our jobs and our relationships to them. ABC's Mike Dubusky takes a look back at what the pandemic did to the economy and what its lasting effects could be. Alex, Casey Weaver didn't always want to be a teacher. I really didn't know what I wanted to do for a while growing up and even into college, I wasn't quite sure. 
but she did love history, which is why a little more than 10 years ago, she applied for a job at a school in Jacksonville, Florida. U.S. history, so 11th and 12th graders predominantly is who I taught. It wasn't a lifelong dream, but Casey says she did come to love teaching, even if the pay wasn't great. Nobody gets into teaching because you're going to make a lot of money because you know you're not going to. You get into it because you like the top, you, you like what you're doing, you care about what you're doing. She made it work, though. I was a teacher for 12 years. I've stuck it out for a while. <laughs> she wasn't the only one making it work during that time. Mark Zandi is the chief economist at Moody's Analytics. He says as late as 2019, early 2020, the American economy was doing pretty well. It was good. Uh, unemployment was very low. We had a 3.5% unemployment rate. It felt like wage growth was starting to pick up for a lot of workers. Uh, the stock market was very strong. Interest rates were low. The housing market was healthy. But those good economic times are not how we're likely to remember 2020. And tonight, the staggering loss on Wall Street. The Dow falling a record 2,000 points. Experiencing its largest point drop in history. More and more Americans are joining food lines and pouring into food banks. So March, April of 2020, was they were disastrous. We lost uh, 22 million jobs in those two months. Unemployment surged to... 15, 16%, probably higher than that appropriately measured. In other words, it felt like the floor was falling out of the economy. Casey was able to avoid the worst of that and hold on to her job. But that doesn't mean things were easy, especially not at first. I think we're working 12 hour days for about a week, just trying to get everything set up, which you know, you gotta do what you have to do to get everything set up to make sure that we're not failing the students. She says eventually students adapted and so did she. After the ball got rolling and the kids got used to what the new normal was, I guess, for the rest of the school year. And once I got used to it, I actually enjoyed it a lot more. Now, teaching through a computer brings with it its own host of challenges, technical issues, students who have trouble focusing, to say nothing of the general stress of having to do your job while living through a global crisis. But Casey says in that time, she actually discovered something about her job that she didn't fully see before. For me, I think I've thrived a bit in that environment, which I know... Not everybody did, but I was one of the ones that did. And she says that's because working from home shined a light on exactly what she was missing when she was commuting into school every day. It was just better being at home where I could spend more time with family and my, my pups. So I enjoyed that a whole lot more. And it felt like I had more time to enjoy what I wanted to do while also still being present for the students and still teaching. While Casey's work-life balance was stabilizing towards the end of the school year, so too was the economy, at least compared to those disastrous early days. And that's because of government intervention, says Sandy. Made all the difference. I mean, that was key to keeping the economy together as well as kept together. He says that all started with the passing of a $2 trillion package of coronavirus relief measures. Tonight, with that massive bill now through the Senate and making its way through the House and eventually... To you may the remember the CARES Act, which passed in late March 2020. So just a few weeks after the, the pandemic hit with full force. And then there was a, a number of different legislative packages that were passed all the way through to the American Rescue Plan in the March of 2021. So that one-year period... Uh, lawmakers uh, provided over $5 trillion in support to the economy. That's 25% uh, of GDP. That's massive. I mean, it's double what was provided during the financial crisis to the economy. For Casey, a new school year was starting, and it looked a lot different from just a couple of months previous. There was this sense that, well, COVID's not really happening anymore. You have to, we're going to pretend like it's not an issue. What's more, she now had to teach kids in the classroom, plus those who were still dialing in remotely. The students didn't know what to expect from one day to the next. And for Casey and her colleagues, 
all of that equals burnout. We always called it the April feeling where you just need the end of the school year to eat here because you're worn out. It's been a long year, you're worn out. That April feeling came in September. So at the end of that school year, after her students made it through state testing, Casey quit her history teacher job. It came a point where 12 years later, I think I'm ready to just cut my losses and look, start looking out for more me. She's now a real estate agent. It's been working out for her. In two months this year, I made half my teacher salary for a year. So I think it's worked out pretty well for me. <laughs> I think I made the right choice. And it may be more than just money. In this case, it could be part of a larger renegotiation of our relationship with work. Remember those early days of the pandemic when Casey found herself with all that extra time? Well, now... I can get home a little early to make sure I have time to cook, or I can get home a little bit earlier to do things I want to do. I 100% think this was the right call for me. And for countless other Americans. Alex? While COVID was a risk to all of us, it certainly did not impact every person the same. The virus brought to the forefront many disparities that already existed, as well as new ones that came to light in the early days of the pandemic, including age, race, and even political affiliation. ABC's Lionel Moise takes a closer look at how the virus impacted communities across the country differently. As the U.S. reaches the grim milestone of one million lives lost to COVID, it's more than just a number. These are one million Americans who are no longer with us. And for doctors like Dr. Rachina Bassett McCain, who's an emergency medicine physician and medical director of the McNair Emergency Department in Houston, Texas, it is still tough to see young patients fighting for their lives. I had a young Hispanic patient. He, I believe, was in his 40s. He initially came in with just a little bit of shortness of breath. And within the hour of me arriving to my shift and seeing him, he had coded and died. CDC data shows a major difference in the risk of infection, hospitalization, and death by race. Native Americans are over two and a half times more likely to die of COVID compared to white Americans. CDC data shows African Americans are more than one and a half times more likely, Hispanic Americans 1.1 times more likely. And while vaccines have been touted as our way out of the pandemic, getting people to get a shot has been difficult. So many instances in medicine where black bodies were used for experimentation. Dr. Bassett McCain pointing to the Tuskegee syphilis study. Not just with COVID and not just with vaccines, but there is a, a deep sense of unsureness when it comes to physicians, medical providers, and, and the entire establishment. She says that's why it's so important for her to be vocal in the community beyond the ER. If the message is coming from someone like you, it makes it a little bit more relatable. In New Jersey, Bergen County was ground zero in the state for cases initially, forcing health officials there to scramble to educate people to mask up, wash hands, and eventually get vaccinated. But this was not one size fits all, as every town and borough has different demographics. We're about 35% Asian, and of that, it's predominantly Korean. We're about 22% Latinx. Judah Ziegler, mayor of the borough of Leonia, he realized how important it was to communicate with residents in their native language to build trust. Every message that went out about the pandemic was sent out in English, Korean, and Spanish. Javon Romney Rice is a councilwoman for the township of Teaneck, and she saw COVID hit close to home. I lost two members of my church who happened to also be part of my community. While Teaneck is very diverse, vaccination centers did not reflect that. I would notice that there weren't a lot of people of color in lines. Councilwoman Rice says vaccine hesitancy was a legitimate concern in her area, but that wasn't the main issue. An access issue in terms of the system. Everything was done 
um, online. This was noticed countywide. Lynn Allgrant is VP of Planning, Development and Communication at Greater Bergen Community Action. She was also getting calls from doctors saying they weren't seeing people of color in line as she was getting calls from residents saying they had no way of getting an appointment. We were able to shift strategies. They worked with sites to reserve a block of appointments for the most vulnerable. We were filling those appointments through our grassroots network. All of them, African-American, Latino, the Korean-American population, childcare workers. Many had no internet access due to finances and a lot of the elderly population did not use computers. Across New York City, Cheers for essential workers each night while parts of Jersey lit candles to thank those risking their lives while we all hunkered down at home. But not everyone had the luxury of staying home. Black and brown people may not have had jobs where they could have worked remotely. The pandemic has also been highly politicized. An ABC News analysis of federal data found that on average, the death rates in states that voted for Trump were more than 38% higher than in states that voted for Biden even after vaccines were available. We turned something that should have been a public health crisis into a political crisis and pitted our communities against each other. But moving forward, Dr. Bissett McCain urges us to acknowledge the past to ensure equity is a pillar of response efforts in the future. As for anyone who's still on the fence about vaccination, Gino Cabrera saying do not wait until it's too late. The unimaginable pain and suffering that we are going through right now could have been prevented had our brother had gotten vaccinated. Alex? ABC's Lionel Moyes. Comfort is something many families who have lost a loved one in these last two years have not had, nor have the health care workers who every day go to work and have tried so hard to save lives. Reverend Hannah Reza is a chaplain here at Cedar sinai Hospital in Marina del Rey, California. It's her job to bring comfort to those who have been hurting. The two years have been incredibly hard as, as across the board as it has been for everybody, especially in the healthcare community. And so the Reverend and her team wanted to figure out a way to help the staff at Cedar sinai get a moment of healing or relief. And their answer is something that has everybody here taking notice. Tell me about the cart that you have. Everybody okay. knows about your cart. Everybody <laughs> talks about your cart. Tell me about your cart. All right, so I kind of go by themes of like what season it is, but this is the spring cart that Around the hospital, Reverend Reza steers her spiritual cart through the hallways, a three-tiered cart meant to promote self-care and prevent worker burnout. So the top tier is more interactive, and by interactive, it's, it invites the staff to come into that space to be expressive. So this is our little LED tabletop <laughs> prayer tree, or I, I say prayer slash hope tree, which practice makes the most meaning for the staff. And it's also the thing that you know, allows the, the writer to express what they want and kind of put out there. Hospital workers are invited to write a prayer or a thought on a piece of paper and attach it to the tree. Also on board the cart, there is a vase of water. Don't we all have stuff that we don't really want to put out there <laughs> on the tree? Um, and so it's whatever that is a burden in your life or that is pressing on your heart. I encourage the staff to write on here, fold it so nobody sees it and dissolve it. And it, it dissolves into the water and it's symbolic and it's a practice of letting go. The Reverend invited me to take part in the ritual, writing a thought or a burden on a piece of dissolving paper. I write my message of something I want to release. Put it in here and then stir it up. Wow, it just disappears. So now symbolically, where does that go? I think each individual person has their own way of releasing. 
and what this means for them. Her cart is full of candles, snacks, and teas that staff can use to relax. It's about healing the healers. In the height of COVID, with so many things going on, just so depleted, there's a lot of work to be done in the unit. Rather than inviting to come to us, we ended up going to them. And there's just a significance of meeting them where they are and bringing spiritual care support where they are. And it, it, it had allowed the staff to feel seen and to be recognized. And not one more thing that they had to do to, to come out of their environment. Reverend Reza now a beacon of hope and relief in the hallways of Cedars-Sinai. And with that, the past two years have been incredibly difficult around the world, but there is now hope. An analysis by the Commonwealth Fund found around 1.1 million lives have been saved in the U.S. by COVID vaccines. We have the tools to fight back. Honor, Hope and Healing was presented by ABC News correspondents Aaron Katursky and Alex Stone and produced by Trevor Hastings with Tara Gimble and Ryan Kessler. This has been a special presentation from ABC News Radio. ABC News, winner of nine Edward R. Murrow Awards, including overall excellence in both television and radio. ABC News, America's number one news source.